If you would open your Bible, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, we are once again going to be in this familiar passage that we uh, were in last week and we've talked about a couple of other times, but it's a key text that we need to get a good grip on because Paul is going to take this passage and he's going to develop it. He's going to unpack it and show in different ways how these uh, different aspects that he's going to talk about today are going to be applied, are going to be uh, brought to bear on the Christian life and how we understand the gospel and how we understand how we relate to each other and how we relate to the world and on and on. And so it's important that we spend some time on this passage. I will warn you that today, you see the title of the message is The Anatomy of the Gospel. And one of the things about anatomy is vocabulary, because every little part and piece of you has some name that somebody knows somewhere. And I don't know what that name is usually. But uh, Paul brings out those bits of vocabulary for us today, not just so that he can show off long words, not just so that we will learn them, so that we will feel smart or anything like that. But he pulls out those big words because they are important for us to understand those concepts. And sometimes you need to uh, think very specifically in order to understand a concept accurately. And if we don't understand it accurately, we can't Uh, bring it to bear. We can't understand it, how it relates to another subject or another topic or how it relates to my own life. And so that requires a little bit of specific study. And oftentimes when we do very specific study, that's when you learn the vocabulary words. So if you've had a surgery recently, you know all kinds of fresh vocabulary words because they became important to you in that point because you needed to know what they were going to (laughs) remove or what they were going to fix and how that was going to affect other things. And so you learn these big words that are usually built on Greek or Latin or something like that, and you tell someone what what issue you have, and they don't even understand what you're talking about because of the vocabulary. But it's important, especially when we're going to talk about what the doctor is going to do to us. And when we're talking about issues of the gospel, which is what we come to today, it's important for us to be able to think very specifically, be able to take apart the gospel and understand the inner workings why it does what it does, why it works. And Paul uses big vocabulary words in his effort to accomplish that this morning. So again, we are in Romans chapter 3. I want to read verses 21 through 26 for us today. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are struck by these words this morning. They represent for us and they tell us the breadth of what you have done for us in Christ. We're reminded in these words of the 
how low the bottom is for mankind. What fallenness really looks like. What hope there is from the bottom. And at the same time, we are reminded in these words of the heights of the righteousness of God. And we see in these words spelled out the gospel. The only way by which sinful man may be reconciled to holy God. And so we come to these words and we take them seriously. We rejoice in them. We recognize ourselves in them. And we recognize in them what you have done for us to reconcile us to yourself. And we rejoice. And so, Father, as we study together this morning, may we rejoice. May we celebrate what has happened here in the gospel. May we celebrate the fact that sinful man in Christ is reconciled to holy God. And so as we do that this morning, I pray that you would help us to be all here, have our minds focused on your word, attentive to the things we're talking about. I pray that you would help us to remove distraction, that you by your spirit would do so. And I pray that you would help me as I speak to rejoice in this gospel to celebrate this gospel even as I speak. May you be lifted up and may you do your work in our midst by your Spirit as your word is proclaimed. Father, we trust you with our lives. We trust you with our eternity. And we certainly trust you for the next minutes that we get to study together. So we ask for your blessing on our time. In Jesus' name, amen. What is it, do you think, that makes Christianity different from other religions? What is it that, that makes Christianity stand out? Or perhaps uh, for some of you, maybe you're thinking, well, it's, it doesn't really stand out. Maybe because of sheer size or uh, how old it is or something like that, but it's one of an assortment. But usually, as we're gathered together at church on a Sunday morning, this is a group that recognizes there is something unique about Christianity in comparison to other religions or other world philosophies in this world, how people view reality and what is ultimate truth. And so what is it that makes Christianity different? Well, there are a lot of ways we could answer that question. But I think it boils down to two main differences. The first has to do with an assessment of man, man's state, man's plight, Man's problem, man's value and worth and origin, purpose. I think that's part of it is man's plight, who man is. And the other difference is who God is, what God is really like. What are his origins? How do we, how do we comprehend him? How do we explain him? How do we relate to him? You see, the other religions of the world, other views of the world that try to understand reality and things will tend to mess with those two. 
And they will give an unbiblical perspective, an unbiblical picture of the reality of who man is and who God is. Typically what happens to the image of God is that he becomes in their religion a whole lot more like us, but usually just older and bigger and stronger. So, for example, the, in the ancient world, in the, in the Greek and Roman world, in their mythology, their, their gods had the same foibles that people had. They just had more power also, and so it was dangerous to, to make this god angry or whatever because he was like you and he would probably get, get uh, unreasonably upset, but he also had strength to kill you or ruin your life. And so you see the image of God as like us, only bigger. And of course, the view of man that the world tends to have is also a, a rosy picture, as it were, as if they had rose-colored glasses on. You see, in, in most views of mankind around the world, man is, is basically good. And what's lacking, what's needful in his life is a little bit of information so that he can live his life correctly. Or perhaps he needs a little bit of guidance. Or perhaps he's, he's ill, he's sick, he's got some problem that needs to be resolved, but, but he's basically good and he just needs to be returned to his good state. Or, at worst, man is basically neutral, in which case he sort of needs to be influenced to go the right direction. That's really all he needs, is to be guided. And you see, those, uh, those doctrines, those understanding of man and, and, and God, they do not match up with what we read in Scripture. And so when we come to the Bible, we have a different view a different view of man. We see that though man was created as an upright being, he was made in the image of God. He was endowed with great worth and privilege and position. Yet we have fallen into sin and we've become deeply marred. The Bible actually says that we've become spiritually dead and hopelessly guilty before God. So you see, the biblical picture of man is not rosy. It's not rosy. Likewise, the biblical picture of God is very different. He's not like us, only bigger. He's not just a more powerful version of us. He is entirely above us. The Bible says He is transcendent. He's other. He's the Creator, and we are the creature. Those are completely distinct categories. And so that's who He is. There's a clear division between us and between Him. He is infinitely more wise and powerful than us. And Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is perfectly holy and just. He doesn't share our weaknesses like the gods of the ancient world or in so many religions. The Bible leaves no hope for man who is dead in sin and hopelessly stained by his guilt. Leaves no hope for man himself to bridge that gap to get back to God. How can he do it? It's a grim picture in Scripture. And to make matters worse, we, we read earlier in the chapter that no one seeks for God. No one even tries to do that. And so what makes Christianity different from any other religion or conception of reality is the bad news that Almighty God is the holy and personal being to whom hopelessly sinful man must give an account but another distinctive of biblical Christianity is how God solves that problem. 
He does so in such a way that his own righteousness is maintained and mankind gets peace with God. And so we read in Psalm 85 and verse 11 that righteousness and peace kiss each other. That happens in the gospel where God's righteousness can be maintained and man can have peace. And so we come to our passage today and we're going to talk about the workings, the anatomy, how the gospel works. Last week we looked at the heart of the gospel and we we celebrated what we read about in those first two uh, verses in our passage. But today we're going to talk more in detail about how the gospel works. And to begin with, we're going to talk about the what of the gospel, the essence of the gospel. And so we read in 22 through the beginning, excuse me, 21 through the beginning of 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the first point there is right standing. It's about right standing with God. We talked last week about the righteousness of God in this passage, referring to God's righteousness at work redeeming, saving sinners. It's His righteousness at work. See, man's man's basic problem is that his sin has put him on such deadly footing with God. He's actually made himself to be God's enemy. He's guilty of sin. He stands condemned. And so our passage today walks through how it can be that we can go from being enemies of God, condemned, to being those who have a right standing before God. And the only way that man can have that right standing before God is to gain it by unmerited privilege. He has an unmerited privilege. It's not by works of the law. We don't acquire this position. We don't acquire this standing before God by any self-renovation that we do. We don't get there because we've made ourselves good or we've climbed the ladder or we've obeyed to an adequate degree or anything like that. This is entirely an unmerited privilege that we have of being in this right standing with God. And the reason that is, and Paul is going to develop this very thoroughly in the book of Romans, the reason we can stand before God and have a right standing to be counted righteous before Him is that we need a perfect righteousness in order to do so since God is perfect. And so, we don't have that ourselves. We need a righteousness that is external to us. We need a righteousness that is is alien to us, that belongs to another that can be given to us so that we can have not just pretty good righteousness, or a certain amount of righteousness, or an impressive degree of righteousness, but so that we can have perfect righteousness. The only place that is found is in Jesus Himself. And so we require, in order to have peace with God, we require a righteousness that is alien to us, that is from without. And so we say that this is an unmerited privilege. It's unmerited Because it's based upon righteousness that's not ours. It's based upon His. It's alien to us. It comes from another. We didn't cause it. I made the joke in uh, Sunday school class this morning that this point here, this, uh, this righteousness, having a righteousness that's not ours, is a little bit like 
the state of uh, how much hair we have on our head, right? It's not my own doing that I have a mop of hair, okay? But I do have friends who have less of a mop or no mop of hair. And I like to tease them about that. I like to tease them about uh, their lack of it. And I have all this, you know, all this extra and stuff like that. And the reason I do that and the reason we chuckle is because I had nothing to do with having a mop of hair. God gave it to me. And so when I tease and when I make fun, I'm really making fun of myself because it's absurd for me to boast in how much hair I have on top of my head. I still do that sometimes. I try to do it gently. I know they're, they're men and they can take it, but, but that's a little bit like us boasting in this righteousness. So that brings us to our point of application here regarding this unmerited privilege that the Christian must be humble. We must not think or act as though we are superior in any way to the unbeliever. Christians should be the last people to be arrogant towards others especially the Christian who rightly understands the gospel and rightly understands that the righteousness that we have is alien to us. It comes from Jesus. It is not my own. The privilege we have is entirely unmerited. It is not by works of the law, nor by any other thing that we could have done to have merited it. It's Jesus' righteousness. And so just as it is absurd for me to boast about how much hair I have, It is absurd for the Christian to have any sort of air of superiority over the unbeliever. The righteousness that we have comes from Jesus. It's His and not my own. So Christian, we need to be a humble people. And Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, talking about this being saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man may boast. We've got nothing, people, to boast about. And so, this privilege we have is an unmerited privilege. This privilege we have is ours by faith alone. He talks about in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The only way that this alien righteousness can be ours, the only way that perfect righteousness can be applied to our account is by that open hand of faith outstretched towards God with nothing to offer and everything to gain, everything to receive. Faith is trusting that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the ruler of all, including your own life. And He's the only one who can give us peace with God. And so we look to Him. We look outwards. We look to Him. We look to His righteousness. And so this is the what of salvation that we spent last week discussing. And now we move on to the how section of our passage to discuss the components of the gospel. The components of the gospel. I continue reading in 22. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is the vocab section. 
And this is where we start learning about the details of that little thing that the doctor's telling you, you've got a problem in this area. And so you learn some basic vocabulary or you need to have this solved or this, this fixed. That's where we are in our gospel discussion. First of all, Paul talks about justification, which is talks about Christ's record imputed. Christ's record imputed. He reviews, first of all, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which our whole book of Romans to this point nearly has been establishing for us that all have sinned and thus fall short of God's glory and thus have made themselves God's enemies and are liable to judgment and all of that. He calls it back to to mind and he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And this topic of justification is such an important doctrine that Luther and Calvin and the others of the Reformation era risked their lives to maintain. They risked their lives to write about this, to preach about it, to debate about it, to insist upon it. And the authorities had the right to put them to death. And they preached it anyway because it was that important. The doctrine of justification by faith. And so often today, Christians don't even ponder it. We don't even think about it. It might not even be in our vocabulary. And here it defined the trajectory of the church for the last 500 years. And so we need to know and we need to understand justification and what it really is all about. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He refers to justification as that act by which God judicially declares a person to be righteous in his sight. Justified, to be justified, is courtroom language. It's talking about the verdict of a judge. And Paul is using language here to talk about the verdict that's going to be rendered upon us. And the idea of justification is that we receive... Though we ourselves are guilty, we receive the not guilty verdict because of what Jesus has done. He can look at us. He can see our sin. He can understand the penalty that is due for our sin. And then he looks at Jesus and he sees that Jesus paid that penalty for everyone who has faith in Jesus. And so the judge, God, can look and see the righteous requirement of the law has been met in Jesus for everyone who has faith in Him. And therefore, because of that, God can declare you, sinner, by faith in Christ, to be righteous before Him, to have that standing of righteousness before Him, where you were at enmity with God, you were guilty before God, and now, by faith in Christ, because of what Christ imputes to you, you stand before Him at peace. Because of what Jesus has done. His record is imputed to us. Justification is not just an announcement of pardon by God, as if God said, yeah, I'll just put that aside and sweep it under the rug. Justification is about Jesus Himself. Though He lived a perfect life, obedient to the Father always, made Himself liable to the guilt for your sin, believer. So that you 
and the, the, the guilt, the price that you have accumulated, that penalty that you should pay, He pays it for you. So it's not just God sweeping it under the rug. It has been fully met. It has been fully paid for by Jesus Himself. And so we talk about justification, which is Christ's own record of righteousness imputed to us so that we receive forgiveness of our sins as our sins are placed on Him and we receive His record of righteousness before God. And so God can look at us and He can declare us to be righteous before Him, righteous in His sight because of Jesus' record. Now we've already mentioned one application of justification by faith. It removes any grounds for boasting. But I want to highlight two other applications for us in this doctrine of justification by faith. The first is about assurance of salvation. The degree of assurance of salvation that we have because of what has been accomplished by Jesus Himself is something many of us have never pondered. I have people come into my office and they wonder. They look at their own life and they, they say, well, look at my track record of sin or I've got this sin I, I just can't, I can't uh, get rid of and I've got, uh, I've got these other problems. and I've got, maybe, maybe I'm not even really a Christian. Maybe I'm not even really a Christian because they're looking at their own track record. They're looking at what they've done. They're looking at their own righteousness and they're making an assessment about whether they are or are not right with God, whether, whether God is pleased with them or not. Have they done enough? Or perhaps have they done too much to be, to be, uh, for God to be pleased with them? And where are they looking? They're looking right here. They're looking at their track record. They're examining their own lives. As if they could accumulate some degree of righteousness, that would assure them that God is pleased with them. Yeah, yeah, they understand about coming to Christ as being this exchange that happens in faith in Christ. But, but surely, surely if I want God to see me, to declare me to be righteous, I must have adequate righteousness of my own. And do I? Do I really? And so I tell that person about Jesus. I tell that person about the perfect righteousness of Christ. And I tell that person that he has met every standard. He has accumulated all righteousness so that God is completely and perfectly pleased with the Son. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has obeyed God perfectly always. Is his righteousness adequate before God? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so then I ask the person, whose righteousness are you trusting in? Are you hoping to scrape up enough in your own life? Or are you looking to Christ and what He's done? There is great assurance. There is great assurance in the doctrine of justification by faith. And when the enemy comes and he, he, uh, he whispers to you, Oh, you call yourself a Christian? Don't you know you've done this thing? You can say, Yes, I've done that thing. And Jesus paid the price. And I stand before God not because I haven't done that thing, but because Jesus Himself is righteous. And I stand before God declared righteous because of Christ. And so I have a defense against the attacks of the enemy. So assurance of salvation and secondly, thanksgiving. What's the second application, which is really the third? Application of this doctrine of justification? Thanksgiving. I can praise God and thank God and will literally for eternity. 
because of what he's done. So when I get up in the morning and I, and I feel terrible and I, I think about my yesterday or my, my week or my own life or, or my own failures, I thank God for the righteousness of Christ applied to my account. I thank God that I have forgiveness of my own sins because of what Jesus has done. And I look to Christ. And I find assurance and I give thanks. So we see the doctrine of justification. That's a very, very brief run-through of the doctrine of justification. But we move on, secondly, to the doctrine of redemption, which I've, I've worded deliverance at a cost. Deliverance at a cost. And so we continue reading in our chapter, justified by grace. His grace is a gift. The beginning of 24. Look at the second half of 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The idea of redemption, John Murray puts it this way. He says, redemption contemplates our bondage and is the provision of grace to release us from that bondage. You see, the unbeliever is a slave to sin, not just a slave to obey sin. That is certainly true. A slave to do what sin says. They're a slave to sin. Jesus says anyone who does sin is a slave to sin. And certainly the unbeliever fits that category. They're a slave to sin. Sin says do this and they do it. Now, their sin may not be the ultimate extreme of that. They may not be serial adulterers, but they are in their minds. They may not be serial murderers, but they sure have a lot of bitterness and hatred towards people. So sin has its sway. So they obey sin. But not only, not only that, but they're, they're a slave to the punishment for sin. They, they, will, they will be bound to pay the penalty for their own sin. They are slaves to sin. They are bound up. And so when we talk about redemption in Christ, we talk about the fact that in Christ and because of what He's done, the price that He's paid, what He's accomplished, we are set free from sin. Don't you know that you who have died with Christ have been set free from sin? Romans chapter 6. We are set free, and so sin no longer has dominion over us. It can't make us do anything. Sometimes we let it talk us into things. Sometimes we, we uh, as it were, surrender a certain authority to it, but it cannot make us do anything. We are free from it because of what Christ has done. And we are free from the penalty. Jesus has paid that penalty. And so the idea of redemption is us being removed from that dominion, dominion of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians chapter 1, that we've been set free, we've been rescued from that place where we were the slave of sin in at least those two ways, and we've been set free in Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us, and we no longer bear the penalty of sin. Sure, the presence of sin is still there, but its power and its penalty has been paid for. We have redemption. We have deliverance at a cost. And that cost is the life of Jesus Himself. And so what's the application for us? What's the application for us? We ought to have such comfort that Jesus would pay that penalty for us. We ought to have such comfort that God would be willing to rescue us at such an expense. Listen to the way Paul puts it in chapter 8 and verse 32. 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He has already given the ultimate. Could there be any more? Could there be any greater, any more costly gift than Jesus' own life, the life of the Son of God? There can be none. He's already paid that price. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? So we see poured out for us, demonstrated for us, the love of God for us, and we receive great comfort. And Paul continues in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What comfort there is in this redemption that is ours in Christ. What comfort. We move on thirdly to propitiation. Satisfaction of wrath. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God has every right to express wrath against sin. Every right. He is holy God. He is just, and He is righteous, and He is pure. And He is the Creator, and so we as His creatures, when we sin, we're rebels. We're traitors against God. And so He has every right, and not only does He have every right... But it must happen. If he is truly just, wrath must be poured out upon sin. If wrath is never poured out upon sin, if sin is never dealt with, if the, if the righteous wrath in response to sin from God is never poured out on sin, then he really isn't righteous. He really isn't just. We may call him that. We may give him that name. We may read those words in Scripture, but if, if His righteous indignation, if His wrath is never poured out, if the, if the penalty for the breaking of the law is never poured out, then the law doesn't exist. God's righteousness does not exist. It is right for God to pour out wrath. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, A gospel without propitiation at its heart is another gospel than that which Paul preached. You see, we are liable before God because of our sin. We are deserving of God's wrath. And if God is to be righteous, He must pour out wrath on the breaking of His law. And propitiation says that Jesus stepped in the way of that wrath. And He bore the full penalty of the wrath of God for your sin and mine, believer, in His own body, absorbing it entirely that full wrath of God for everything you've done, for every sin of yours, sins you're not even aware of, the full wrath poured out on Christ so that He, he and Himself bears that in His body on the tree. That's propitiation. And so what's the result? If God has 
fully poured out His wrath for you, what wrath does He have left for you? None. He has no wrath left for you, Christian. The demands of justice in relation to God's wrath have been fully satisfied. We were liable to the wrath of God, but God provides Jesus to absorb that wrath for every person who has faith in Him. So there are a couple of points of application that we should write down. When we sin, at least two things we need to call to mind. First, the breaking of God's law automatically and inevitably incurs a response of God's righteous wrath. And so that should be a sober thought, Christian. That should be a sober thought that the breaking of God's law, disobedience to God, automatically and immediately incurs wrath from God. That's the first thing to call to mind. But there is a second thing that you must call to mind immediately. After having been sobered up by that first thought, the second thing we must call to mind is that God, because of His great love for us, sent His Son to bear that wrath for all His children. And that glorious thought causes the child of God to repent and to rejoice that God's wrath has been fully satisfied for us. So when we sin, we need not to ignore it as if it didn't matter. We need not to set it aside and say, well, that, that, uh, I don't really have to deal with that, so I'm just not going to think about that. We need to ponder and we need to understand what has just happened. My sin incurs the wrath of God. And Jesus bore it. And so I praise Him. And I find hope and I find peace and I find repentance. I find repentance because of the grace of God in the propitiation provided by His Son. So that is the how of the gospel. Those are the the, the details of how that worked out, the elements, uh, the components of how it works. Thirdly, let's move on to the purpose, the why of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel. And we conclude the second half of 25 and 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, there's a problem with forbearance. There's a problem with forbearance. I said earlier, the breaking of God's law immediately and unavoidably incurs the wrath of God. And Adam and Eve were told, don't eat from this tree for the day in in which you eat of it, you will surely die. Did they die? They didn't physically die that day. And in fact, more than that, God graciously provided skins for them to wear. He gave them grace even in that moment. He did not visit His wrath upon them, though His law had been broken. He gave them grace instead. And years passed and more sin occurred. And was the wrath of God fully visited? It was not. God was forbearing. He was, he was holding it together. He was, he was retaining it for some later point. This was to show His righteousness in, uh, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. His full wrath had never been poured out 
on sinful mankind. And so there's a problem with forbearance because how long can God forbear to, to render wrath before we start saying maybe He doesn't have wrath? How long can He hold it in? How long can He, can he wait before it becomes questionable whether He is really righteous and just? Can it go forever that way? It can't go forever that way. How long can it go? It almost seems like a parent telling the child, don't do that, and they do it anyway. Don't do that, and they do it anyway. Don't do that, and they do it anyway. It seems like it almost be like that. If God's never going to visit His wrath upon sin, we have a problem with forbearance. And so He says here, this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. So there's a problem that's raised by this forbearance. And secondly, there's a problem that's raised because of forgiveness. Look what he says. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. You see, the gospel that Paul is preaching and the gospel that I'm preaching says that in Christ, by faith in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. We have his righteousness credited to our account. So where is God's wrath? If it still hasn't been visited, is he really righteous? If propitiation is not a thing, if that wrath of God was not poured out on Jesus himself, then God is just changing the rules and saying, yeah, I know I had that law thing where I told you what to do, and if you broke it, there would be a penalty. I'm changing the rules. And so now if you'll just call on my name, we won't worry about that. That's not the gospel, and that's not a righteous God. He's changing the rules. And so, any time the gospel is proclaimed and any time a person puts their faith in Christ and finds forgiveness of sins instead of judgment from God, it raises the question, if there is no such thing as propitiation, if the penalty hasn't really been paid, is God just playing fast and loose with the rules? We have a problem that is raised by forgiveness, if God is simply overlooking sin because He can't bear to judge it or He can't bear to show His wrath against it, He can't bear to punish, to carry out the penalty of the law from the breaking of His law. The Bible says that God is just and His law is just. Thus, the breaking of of His law provokes just wrath by Him. If God just forgives without ever dealing with the world's treasonous sin against him, then we have a problem with forgiveness. But what does he say? He summarizes. I want to read this whole sentence again, starting at the second half of verse 25. This, meaning the gospel, these things that he just explained, this propitiation, this, this, uh, uh, the, the judgment that's poured out on Jesus so that we could be bought with a price, this justification, because of that, All of that was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. But He didn't just let them go, did He? It was to show His righteousness at the present time, meaning God's not just changing the rules on you so that when we preach the gospel, we're preaching, oh, God just doesn't really care about sin. No. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so we have the purpose statement. The purpose statement. Why the gospel must be this way and what it accomplishes. 
this gospel takes seriously the righteousness, the holiness, the standard of who God is. Take seriously that God doesn't just change the rules. He doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. He really is righteous. This gospel takes that seriously. And this gospel takes seriously the fact that mankind has fallen. He is far from God. He's made himself God's enemy. He has behaved in such a way that God considers himself to be man's enemy. It takes that, that seriously. And it takes seriously the fact that God's righteous wrath is deserving of sin, deserving to be poured out upon sin. Only this gospel bridges the gap so that God may be just, so that He may retain His righteousness, so that He actually is all the way just and He's not just grandpa in the sky whose job it is to forgive people, so that He actually remains just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that we, in our sin, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, we, in our sin, look away from ourselves, look away from our own accomplishments because we know they amount to nothing. And we instead look to Christ. We look to His accomplishments. We look to His righteousness, His obedience, that He has always obeyed the Father. He, he is righteous and He died in my place paying the penalty for my sin. And so I can stand before God and God can remain just. He doesn't have to bend the rules for me. He remains just. He remains who He really is and yet the penalty be fully paid, but not by me, by Jesus. So that I have His, his record credited to my account and I stand before God in gratitude at the grace of God in Christ. In the gospel, God reveals himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to conclude. Some of you have remained in your unbelief even until today. You've heard this before. And you have remained in your unbelief even now. And my prayer is that you see today that there is no other way to have peace with God than through faith in Christ. There is no other option. You will bear that wrath in your own body for eternity. You will remain the enemy of God, knowing no peace with God, apart from faith in Christ. He obeyed God where you have disobeyed. And He died bearing the wrath of God so that no one who has faith in Christ would have to bear that wrath himself. So put your faith in Christ. Won't you turn from whatever has been your Lord, whatever you've been looking to, whatever you've been trusting in, won't you turn from that and trust in Jesus Christ alone? And you will have peace with God. You'll have eternal life. And others of you have been confused up to this point about what the gospel really is. My hope and my prayer is that as we understand how the gospel works, as we understand the truth of it more, that we ourselves will find comfort. We ourselves will find strength for life. We ourselves will look to Him. We will give Him glory. We will rely upon Him. We will trust in Him. And He will be the center. And He will be glorified in our salvation. 
I pray you better understand the comfort and the assurance and defense that is yours when you understand the gospel aright. There is comfort here, and there is comfort only here. And there is life here, and there is life only here. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this gospel. We learned, we talked about big words. You used big words. You spoke very specifically by your Spirit in Paul's writing about the anatomy of this gospel. You didn't pull punches. You didn't speak in vague categories. You spoke very specifically. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand very specifically. I pray that we indeed would would look to Christ for these things. We wouldn't look to ourselves or our track record or uh, anything else, but that we would look to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would do your work by the proclamation of the gospel, even this morning, amongst those of us who are believers, that we would look to you, that we would find comfort, that we would find assurance, that we would see how we must be a humble people because we indeed have nothing to boast about and that we would be a thankful people because of this gospel. And for those this morning who don't know you yet, Father, I pray that you would use this proclamation of the gospel by your Spirit to draw them to yourself. That even this morning, even at lunchtime, even sitting in their seat right now, they would trust in you. Father, I pray that you would work that miracle in them, deliver them from the domain of darkness, and transfer them into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, we love you and we trust you and and we rejoice and we should be a rejoicing people. We should be a smiling people, even in the midst of pain, though we weep at the same time, because we know what is ultimately comforting. We have peace with you through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. So Paul, in Romans chapter 11, says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you want to pray, there's going to be a family up here who would love to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all and you're dismissed.